when a retired lieutenant colonel is open to coming on a podcast and sharing his research about UFOs, it's worth a listen. Also, it's Open Loops. Your conscious mind deserves a hug. Your unconscious mind deserves to tune in to its favorite late night talk show for the shamelessly fringe. It's Open Loops with Greg Bornstein. Conversations that bend. Today on Open Loops, we have Kevin Randall, very prominent ufologist. Uh, he is one of the preeminent experts on the reported crash of the UFO near Roswell. Uh, you can hear him monthly on Coast to Coast. Is it monthly? Weekly. Weekly. It's weekly. Oh, my gosh. See, that's even better. You can hear him weekly on Coast to Coast AM. That's how That's how uh, much of a of a voice in the community he is. Uh, very much a professional best-selling author with over 100 books to his name. Uh, also, PhD in psychology, was in the United States Air Force and National Guard, where he was a lieutenant colonel before retiring in 2009. And, um, you know, he's the author of this book, Level Land, which sounds fascinating, but in general, I mean, Kevin's life sounds fascinating. It sounds like you have a lot to offer in many different aspects of the UFO world. So I'm going to try to stay as on topic with Level Land as possible, given that, um, you know, that's one of the most recent books that you've come up with. But I'm excited to delve into as much of it as possible. Kevin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, I hate to correct you at the very beginning of your show. Oh, no. But I, also I, was in the U- I was also in the U.S. Army as a helicopter pilot. Uh, oh, really? What is this bio? Who gave me this off? <laughs> Who gave me this? Uh, yeah, you know what? Okay. It, well, thank you for all your service. My gosh. Yeah, really, really. It's uh, it doesn't it legitimize it in a way. I mean, it's uh, it, before we go into this, it always and again, not to say that there aren't people that might tell a tall tale that come from the military. I'm sure there are, but. I know from listening to these interviews over the years, um, certainly as soon as the Pentagon says the UFOs are real, then everybody believes it. And when someone in the army talks about seeing stuff and investigating, then you go, oh, they're in the services. Uh, In your experience, I mean, do you feel that uh, your perspectives gives you more of an edge in terms of having credibility compared to other people that are ufologists. I know that appending a rank to your name, regardless of the rank practically, it does present a a facade of credibility. Unfortunately, there are people who make these things up. There's a book called Stolen Valor by a guy named Burkett. 
and it talks about all these people who claim Vietnam service, for example, hmm. who uh, tell these horrific stories of combat in Vietnam. Many of them uh, didn't serve in uh, Vietnam in that capacity. They were clerks or something like that. Many of them served in the army at the, during the Vietnam era, but didn't make it in, in what we said in country. And some of them didn't serve at all. And so you have to vet the people carefully to make sure they're saying they are who they say they are. For example, I say I was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. I found, actually, there's two places. One is the 187th Assault Helicopter Company website. It's 187th AHC. And you go over to the unit roster and over to the R's and scroll down, you'll find pictures of me both in Vietnam and in, in Iraq. So Great. there is kind of... Um, establishing my credibility in that arena. I also found a picture from um, the flight school days. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, it's, it's one of those class pictures, you know, with everybody in it. And I'm like second for the right in the second row. And you, if you get a magnifying glass, you still can't recognize me, but it does have my name down there. Right. So, you know, I can establish the credentials when you run into people who say, well, my, I did the secret stuff and my records are classified and all that. That's, that's nonsense. You know, if, if you, Try to search my record in St. Louis. They'll send you stuff about it. Uh, a lot of people say, well, my records burned up in, in St. Louis when they had the great fire in 1973. And that's not necessarily true. There's other ways of establishing credibility. I have travel vouchers from the 1970s in the Air Force. So, I mean, I've got a wide range of documentation I could present to to add to my credibility that way. So having established that credential, I think suggests a little bit more stability in my investigative talents than some people who have not served. It also, I was invited into the QFOS investigation of Roswell for one reason, it's because my military background. Hmm. Many of the witnesses had a military background, many of them were career military officers, and they thought that because of my military background, I'd be able to relate to them better than someone who hadn't served. And one of the first things I discovered, Thomas DuBose had been labeled in a number of books as General Ramey's aide. Well, a Brigadier General does not have a full colonel as an aide. Four-star general might, but a Brigadier General doesn't. Thomas DuBose was, in fact, the chief of staff, a much more important position than being the general's aide. And I, I knew immediately when I saw that it couldn't be right and discovered who he really was. So that sort of thing helps in the investigation of the UFOs because I understand the military mindsets. I understand how these things work. I understand how classified documents work. I understand when you uh, present a document like MJ-12, for example, and say, here it is, and, and here's the classifications. I can say, you know, that's not right. That's not how they did it. This suggests something wrong. Do people make mistakes with real classified materials? Absolutely. But there are some pretty standard rules that are very hard to violate because they're um, so easy. For example, the top secret will be stamped top and bottom of the page with top secret. And each paragraph will tell you whether it's top secret, secret, uh, classified or uh, confidential or unclassified. There'll be a little parenthetic symbol at the beginning with a you know a t for top secret and s for secret that sort of thing and so when you're looking at these documents you look for those sorts of clues about um, how this works so yeah the military background is helpful it helps establish credibility i think um, a high level of education 
not just a, a, a bachelor's degree, but also a master's degree or PhD also helps to establish a certain amount of credibility because it suggests an educational background that would be helpful in understanding UFOs or understanding the investigative process or the scientific method when getting into looking at uh, the UFO phenomenon. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, you, you've already said stuff that has led to so many more questions, um, especially about these documents that people toss around that say, there's proof, look at the proof, there's, uh, you know, they're talking about bodies and, and whatnot. I mean, is, uh, so are you saying that a lot of, there are some sacred cows, I suppose, in this community that you can say right now, nah, some guy typed this up on a typewriter and then just said this is military is, is that what i'm reading between the lines here i don't think you need to read it between the lines i'm saying it specifically i think MJ yeah 12, yeah yeah mj12 is a complete and total hoax i think interesting it by, I, I thought it was, I, I think it was started by specific individuals in fact bill moore who is the one who released the documents into the public arena had said to a number of people and stan friedman told me this that uh, bill had said to him well i'm having trouble getting the witnesses in the Roswell case to talk to me. And I would like to create some kind of a document to show them and maybe push them a little bit further into talking about what, uh, what they may have seen or witnessed in the Roswell case. He told it to Stan Friedman. He told it to Brad Sparks and Stan Friedman confirmed it to me. So, you know, and, and then later on, Stan Friedman said, well, no, I never said anything like that. Okay. Don't believe me. Um, go to Brad Sparks. It's not something that wasn't uh well-established back in the early 1980s. And lo and behold, he ends up with these documents that tell us everything that we would want to know. I mean, if MJ-12 was true, that establishes there was a crash at Roswell and alien bodies were recovered. The problem with those documents is they read as if they were created in the 1980s. And here's what I mean. Right. Here's what I mean by that. A fellow named Robert Willingham showed up in the um, late 60s and talked about a UFO crash in Del Rio, Texas. And everybody believed him because he said he was a, a retired colonel from the um, Air Force, and that he had been involved in this case as part of his Air Force duties as a fighter pilot. No one bothered to vet this guy. When I was doing crash when UFOs fall from the sky, which was an updated version of the history of UFO crashes, and I, I had Willingham and his affidavit in the... Um, uh, um, history of UFO crashes, and I got the affidavit from QFOS because they had they had a copy of it, and they all believed him. And I got to reading about him in um, Noah Torrey's book on the uh, Del Rio crash, the other the other um, Roswell. And I said, some of this doesn't make sense to me. And I said, and I I talked to Noah Torrey. I said, you vet this guy, and they said, no, they, they he had documents, and they looked at them. And that was as far as they went. So yeah. I got to looking at looking at the guy and discovered that uh, it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me at all. He said, well, here's a picture of him in the 1960s in his Air Force uniform. And they sent me a copy of the picture. And I looked at it and said, no, that's a Civil Air Patrol uniform. Civil Air Patrol is an auxiliary of the Air Force, a civilian auxiliary. They're volunteers. They do search and rescue. They have a cadet program for uh people who are interested in aviation and a way of getting into the Air Force at a little higher, higher rank than a, a, as an E1, but you can come in as an E2, E3, depending on how far you've gone in the Civil Air Patrol program. Uh, and they perform a number of other services, but it's not the Air Force. It's an auxiliary of the Air Force. <clears throat> and he's in, an Air, he's in his Civil Air Patrol uniform. And how do I know this? Because the Civil Air Patrol had a brass 
a plate that they wore over their um, pocket. And it says Civil Air Patrol, Auxiliary of the United States Air Force. On his collar insignia, you can see his, his rank on one side and the CAP on the other side. So it's clear that he's wasn't an Air Force officer. So I, I got his records from St. Louis. And it turned out he'd spent 13 months in the Army, not the Air Force. He is technically, was technically a veteran of the Second World War. He joined the Army in December of 1945. The war didn't officially end until the middle of 1946. The shooting stopped, of course, in September, once the Japanese had surrendered. So he um, rose to the rank of E4, not very spectacular rise in rank, and then was out. He claimed that he um, had gotten back in, he'd gone to flight school, he flew in Korea um, unofficially. Uh, he said he was badly injured, so they wouldn't let him be a fighter pilot anymore, so he ended up in the Air Force Reserve. And I knew a lot of Air Force reservists and, and Air National right. Guard men who had been in the service. And I said, I asked him, I said, you know, a guy said he was injured, um, uh, badly injured, and he couldn't stand the, the ejection of, uh, out of a fighter plane, that sort of thing. And I said, would he then be disqualified from active duty, but could serve in the, the reserve of the National Guard? And I said, no. They said, he can't fly the fighter planes. Could have flown cargo planes because there's no ejection in the cargo planes and some of the bombers don't have ejection systems. But they were telling me, no, this doesn't make any sense to me. Here's one other thing. When I went through flight school, the day we graduated, they said, tomorrow we'll be holding a class um, for you who would like to get a FAA license, be a commercial pilot's license because we all had 200 hours of flight time. We would have to take a 50 question test on the FAA regulations. If we passed it, we would be granted a FAA commercial pilot's license. I know of no Air Force pilot or Army pilot who ever did that would be a private pilot, which is a lower grade than a commercial pilot. I myself did it. I didn't stay at that time because we were going on leave and I was going to hang around the Fort Rucker another day when I could go home. Right. Uh, and we had orders for Vietnam, so I was interested in getting home as quickly as possible. But um, after I got out of the, um, out of the Army, uh, I went to the local FAA station and took the test. It took me 30 minutes to take the test. I didn't get a really high score on it. I got a high enough to pass and I got a commercial pilot's license. Willingham didn't have a private uh, commercial pilot's license. They had a private pilot's license. I can think of no reason why that would be. He should have had a commercial pilot's license. That was another clue that he wasn't who he said he was. The point is getting back to MJ-12, which is a roundabout way to get there. Willingham was quoted in Skylook, which was the original publication of MUFON, evolved mm -hmm. into the MUFON Journal. In March of 1968, he's interviewed about the crash in Del Rio. It's one paragraph. Uh, I think it's on page three of the March 1968 Skylook magazine. I think you can find it online if you look, because that's where I found it. And it talks about him being a lieutenant colonel in the Civil Air Patrol. The story he tells in that article does not match what he told to Len Stringfield, does not match what he said in the affidavit. So now we've got a we've got a very big problem. He has no military records that suggest this. We now have a different story about it, but that this story is what appears in the MJ-12 document. So here's a story that came out in 1968. There's no evidence of it but prior to 1968 in a document that was supposedly written in 1952 about the uh, they called it the El, El, um, uh, El Indio Guerrero 
UFO crash, which is not that far from Del Rio. It's the same thing, same date. The dates change, the aircrafts change, the situation has changed. And then when he talks to Noah Torres and uh, Ruben Uarte about it for the book that they did with Willingham as the, the main character, is, is shifted again. So now we have all this stuff going. But we look at the story that appears in the MJ-12 document mm -hmm. from 19, when it appears in 1984, supposedly, this is the story that Willingham was telling in the late 1970s. Mm. And so what we know is that's the one of the fatal flaws on the Eisenhower briefing document. And that suggests to me that it doesn't, um, it, 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 it's a hoax. Now, Bill Moore mentions that crash in his book, The Roswell Incident, and kind of uh, um, suggests that the craft was incinerated. Todd Zeckel, who's the one that uh, found Willingham and got all this information, says that, well, that was just more trying to belittle or dismiss this other UFO crash because he was building up the Roswell crash. The real point, though, is this, in the MJ-12 document, we have this long segment, well, this short segment paragraph about the, uh, the UFO crash in the El Indio Guerrero area of uh, Mexico. And Willingham is the, is, is the um, author of that. So we, we see the document, we can place the document and some other things that are said in the document suggest it was written in the 1980s and not 1952 for Eisenhower. Wow, so wait a minute, is there any documentation you believe that is legitimate that has been leaked that has implied that there are alien bodies somewhere that the government's investigated. Hey, Looper. Hey, Loopers. Loopers. Looking to make some change in your life? Well, I am hypnotizing people again. So, book your free hypnosis session uh, in the show notes. Would love to help you make a change. Also... You like this podcast? Please make sure it gets out there. If you can share it with your friends, follow it on Apple, Spotify, and rate the show and leave a review. Go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash open loops. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash open loops. Mark yourself down as a looper so I know it's you. If you're into the fringe, you into the intellectually escapist, sign your name on the review and and let yourself be a proud looper. All right, now here's Kevin. No, there are no legitimate documents that have been leaked with that information. There are legitimate documents. Uh, there's an FBI telex from July 8th, 1947, relating to the Roswell crash, which talks about the balloon, but it uh, also suggests that it wasn't uh, borne out by further conversation. But that's one of the few documents we have from an official source. We, of course, have the newspaper articles from July of 1947 that tell us a lot of this stuff. And we have testimonies from a number of people, including almost every senior member of Colonel Blanchard's staff, he being the commanding officer in Roswell in July of 1947. Almost every one of them that we were able to talk to said, yeah, this thing, uh, this took place and it was probably alien. The one exception was um, a fellow named Barrowclaw who wrote to Kent Jeffrey that it you know, just not true. And I wish all you can uh, conspiracy nuts would stop bothering me. Right. Uh, I learned that two of the officers on, on uh, Blanchard's staff in 1947, one was killed in Korea. They were testing some kind of huge bomb that was being delivered by a B-29 and it, uh, the plane lost two of the engines. 
And so they were going to drop the bomb to get rid of this white so they could get back to the base. And as they released the bomb, it detonated and literally blew the plane to bits. I mean, they never found anything. They know what happened to it, but they never found any pieces. The other one, I think it was Payne Jennings was, um, um, I'm not sure it was Payne Jennings. There were, there were two officers. Um, Payne Jennings was the one that blew up in Korea. The other one was the operations officer, Hopkins, who was on a flight from Roswell to England. They were moving part of the uh, 509th group to England and the plane went down in the Atlantic Ocean. Hmm. Uh, and the story was that um, he had disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. It was like eight, 900 miles north of the Bermuda Triangle, closer to Ireland. But they found the they found the wreckage when the plane went down. They they got a search plane out there and they found the guys. They were outside the airplane. They had survived the crash. They were in the lifeboats or life rafts around the plane waiting for rescue. The plane stayed on station as long as it could, and then it disappeared. Disappeared. It flew back to uh, its home base in England, and it took 19 hours to get a ship out to them. And when the ship got out there, everything was gone. And they they didn't find much of anything behind. So they they did vanish but not in the Bermuda Triangle. We didn't talk to either one of those guys because they were long gone, but we did talk, I talked to Edwin Easley. I talked to Patrick Saunders. I didn't talk to Jesse Marcel Sr. because he had died before Don Schmidt and I got involved in this, but we did have the records of his uh, conversation with various people uh, that we could we could rely on for, for information. But um, as for documentation, we have not gotten to anything that seems to be legitimate. There are documents out there that are legitimate that, that attest to it, but you have to look at the people who are talking about it. I think um, Robert Sauerbacher is one of the guys who wrote a letter to Wilbur Smith in Canada talking about UFO crashes and how they're real. But Sauerbacher, who was supposedly to serve on a committee that dealt with this sort of thing, never made the meetings and what he was relating was all secondhand. Hmm. It, was, it was secondhand information and he gave it to Wilbur Smith. So that's interesting, but I would like a letter from the guy who actually had participated in the meetings as opposed right. to the guy who heard about what went on in the meetings. So when we're looking at Roswell, no, we, we don't have a lot of documentation there. We have a lot of testimony from participants, both military and civilian. Uh, we have affidavits that they signed, but once again, um, even though you're signing an affidavit and you're swearing it's the truth, it's there really is no penalty for lying on these affidavits hmm. because it was a it was we UFO researchers and I say we I think Carl Flock was involved Stan Friedman was involved Don Schmidt was involved we were getting the the um, affidavits from the witnesses and they were signing them and some of them uh, uh, probably I, I think most of them were telling the truth I think some of them got the information a little skewed when they were talking about uh, what happened and when it happened and that sort of thing. Uh, and there were one or two that I think were just basically making it up. And we can, we have a pretty good clue as to who those people are. And I, 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 as I mentioned earlier to you, I just finished a book called Understanding Roswell. And there's a long segment that deals with all of these things that we've just talked about, the MJ-12 documents, the Roswell slides, the witnesses who's had feet of clay, if you will, who were not as credible as they could be, who signed documents, who signed out the Davids, but we have since learned that their stories weren't true. So there's a segment that deals with that and deal with some of the uh, false documentation. Yeah, this is very interesting. And and one of the things that I find so fascinating is that um, it, it does call attention to this notion of, I think people, as soon as they see something written down, 
all of a sudden they it's proof. I mean, it, it is kind of uh, in le- at least floating around the conspiracy community a little bit they look for anything and if there's something that has everyone's looking for the smoking gun that's it and sometimes they twist smoking guns and sometimes they don't um but it's very hard kevin to discern who is telling the truth versus who isn't especially as someone that's just even going okay i'm going to accept that there are these ufos out there uh it it makes it hard to know who to believe Uh, what are your thoughts on people that are getting into this and and really want to take the ufo topic seriously but also don't want to get lost in all the fakery the ufo topic is so diverse that's the problem too almost have to you almost have to, to, to plan on a section of UFOs that you wish to study. Uh, you want to look at crash retrievals. You want to look at alien abductions. You want to look at crop circles. You want to look at animal mutilations. You want to look at magnetic effects. You want to look at photographic cases. You want to look at radar cases. You want to look at military cases or pilot cases. You know, So you have all of this diverse information coming in. And once you look at that, it's very simple to stop your research when you get the answer you want. And one of the best examples I can think of that is Frankie Rowe's father was a firefighter in Roswell in 1947. And she told how her father had gone out to the crash site and seen the bodies and came home and told her and the family about it. And there's corroboration from other members of the family said, yes, our father did say that. His, his name was Dan Dwyer, fireman. He was a Lieutenant in the fire department at the time. Carl Flock called a fellow named Smith, who had been a firefighter in 1947, knew, knew about this, and asked him questions about this. And you read Carl Flock's book on an inconvenient truth. And he talks about how he talked to this firefighter and the fire department didn't go out. They didn't make a run out there, which was the story. They made a run out there. And that's how uh, Dwyer had seen the thing. Um, and he let it go at that. Well, I talked to the same guy. And what he told me was a colonel had come out from the base and told him, you guys don't have to go out there because we'll take care of it. It's always a colonel. It's never a captain, never a lieutenant, never a sergeant, always a colonel. Right. And they had a number of colonels there, so it could have well been a colonel, but um, came out and said, you don't have to worry about it. And so we didn't make a run out to the, out to the, the site, which tends to negate Frankie Rose's testimony. And I said to Smith, did you know Dan Dwyer? And he said, Oh, yeah, he went out. And I said, what? He said, yeah, he went in his private car. We were told not to go out there, but he went out in his private car. So he he was out there. So no, there's no record in the fire department. I knew that because I had gone through the records of the fire department. They had him going back until into the 1940s. I knew that they made runs outside the city limits, which was one of the things they said, well, the fire department didn't make runs outside the city limit. And when I talked to the firefighters about that, they said, well, of course we do. What are we supposed to do? Let it burn? So they made the runs and there were, there were, instances in 1947 where they had made runs outside the city limits based on the documentation but um they didn't go out because they were told not to worry about it the uh, the air force the army air force was taking care of it but dan dwyer and they said dan dwyer went out on his own so i had now confirmation from a firefighter who was there in 1947 corroborating what frankie road told me but the point is carl flock didn't ask the follow-up question he got the answer he wanted, which was the fire department didn't make a run out there. And he ran with that answer. When you're doing this research, you have to ask the next question. 
Mm. I was looking into the great airship of 1897 and found a wonderful story in the Cedar Rapids Gazette about it being seen over Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and, and the, the several of the men from Cedar Rapids riding in the, the um, airship. And if you read the airship stories, you'll see a lot of stories about people being taken for rides in the in the airship. And I, and I went back home and thinking, well, I found a wonderful story. And as I drove home, I thought, you know, I should have looked at the next day's paper. So I went back the next day and looked at the next day's paper. And the whole Cedar Rapids thing had, had unraveled because the craft landed in Waterloo. And there was an illustration in the Cedar Rapids Gazette about what the thing looked like. And it told the story uh, of, from there. And so I checked out the Waterloo's newspaper and the next day and we found out it was all a hoax because these guys in Waterloo had uh, built this thing on the fairgrounds and they were telling this wonderful story but the one of the uh, the professor who was uh, leading the thing the German professor he uh, he was recognized as a local resident so they knew it wasn't true and the thing that cracks me up and show you that I didn't go far enough I did a book um, Alien Mysteries and I was relating that story and they have an editor at uh, Visible Inc. who goes out and, and gets illustrations for the books. He found a picture of this 1897 thing in Waterloo. It matched the illustration in the Gazette, but of course the picture was much better than the illustration. <laughs> right. So I right. bought the illustration in the picture, but I didn't take it far enough myself. I got the, I, I found out what was going on and never thought there'd be a photograph from 1897 in Waterloo, Iowa, but there was. So you, and, and I've got, in fact, if you go to my blog and, and look up uh, the, the uh, 1897 airship, there's actually a picture. I, the picture is on, on my blog as well. Oh my God. You have to follow it to, you have to follow it to the end. You have to go to the end. You have to go to the end. I do something else on my blog called chasing footnotes and you'll read a note footnote in a book. And it says, so I got this from this source. So I go to that source and see what right. it says. And, and well, he got it from another source. So I go to that source and I chase it to the very end. So I find out if the, the, the initial report, the initial story matches what's being published today. Oftentimes it does not. And it's been kind of corrupted in the telling of the story from book to book to book to book. Yeah, that is such a good point. Um, you know, to, to, to circle back to something about the bodies for a second and this notion of secret programs in the government i mean what would you say it, it, okay this is my issue and, and again i come from more of a skeptical background that has been turned to being open-minded by entertaining these topics but uh i i often feel that it can be a cop-out answer when people say well it was a secret government program of course there isn't anything written about it but at the same time, I could understand, I guess logically it makes sense. Yeah, we're not going to put anything down. I mean, just because you don't believe there's documentation that there were alien bodies recovered somewhere, do you believe that necessarily means that people haven't, the government hasn't engaged with aliens before? How, how do you work around that logic? Well, the problem is when you begin to deal with top secret material, and if there was a crash of an alien spacecraft, you can imagine it would be classified top secret. Yes. When you're when you're looking at that sort of thing, the access to the programs becomes very limited. And so you have to have the proper clearance. And they say, well, you know, Rosa was two points above top secret. Well, that's not quite right. Um, you can have a top secret clearance, but that doesn't clear you to stuff that has a code word to it. You need to mm. code, code, code word 
cleared for that specific material. For example, and I'll use MJ12, you know, the, the, the thing would be, you would have, it would say top secret majestic. Majestic's the code word. And they can limit it more by adding another code word to it. So it would be like Majestic 12. Although the problem with Majestic 12 is they keep using different code words. It was MJ12. It was Majestic 12. It was yes. just MJ. So that doesn't work in, in that arena. But you, you limit the number of people who are involved. And so when you start looking for classified documents, if it affects national security, well, FOIA doesn't apply. So they say there's a national security aspect to this and it does not apply. And it would be very difficult to find some of those documents. Once in a while, things leak out. And this is how we learned about Moondust. That was a classified, pro actually, I think Moondust was a code word hmm. and it was classified. And if you had a Moondust um, activity, they would appoint a project officer from the closest military installation or somebody to come in and take care of the investigation of the moon dust event. I found four um, reports in Project Blue Book labeled moon dust. So clearly it exists. What happened was Robert Todd had issued or it made a number of FOIA requests to the State Department. And in the documentation that came back, there were a number of documents that were labeled moon dust. And so that put us onto moon dust. It was compromised in 1986, I think it was. Then that ended. I mean, there was just no more documents from, from Moondust. Todd sent a letter to them and wanted the new name. And the response was, it's properly classified. The code name is classified. So he couldn't get the code name. So we don't know what the code name is. What we do know is the military, the government, the Air Force said, we don't investigate UFOs anymore after 1969. And yet here we are in 1986 with a program that's classified with a code word that engages in UFO investigations. Moondust was a classified program. A class, a program is not quite the right. When I, I had to rewrite the book I did on Project Moondust because we learned all this stuff from the time the book came out. So I'm, you know, the, the language becomes cumbersome, I guess. Uh, but Moondust activities uh, did not end in 1986, but they continued on after the Air Force uh, closed Project Blue Book and said, we don't investigate UFOs anymore. And yet here we have a series of documents labeled moon dust, in which clearly they were investigating UFOs. When um, I think it was Cliff Stone uh, challenged the military on that, the response was, there's no such project as moon dust, which technically was correct, <laughs> but it wasn't honest. It wasn't the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Right. When documents labeled moon dust were presented by... Um, Senator Jeff Bingaman of New Mexico to the Pentagon, the officer who said, you know, moon dust didn't exist. He said, well, yeah, but we never used it. And then we have a number of documents where moon dust did go into effect. Now, moon dust was an activity, I guess is the best way to put it, with the mission to uh, investigate returning space debris of foreign manufacture or unknown origin. Well, unknown origin covers UFOs. And we know that there was a UFO component because, well, actually two things. We have the, the sightings in the Project Blue Book files from I think September of 1960. They're really bad sightings. I mean, it's like a streak of light in the distance that nobody's sure what, what it was. So there was a report that came to it and the, the project card is labeled moon dust. And, and we have other uh, cases in which it was clear that somebody uh, operating under the auspices of moon dust were, were, did, conducted some investigations. And so we know that that wasn't true. 
But what we do know is there was a project that was carried on beyond 1986. We don't know what the code name was. And then, of course, we have the, the stuff from uh, 2004, 2005 with the Navy being involved with the Tic Tacs. So we know there's still stuff going on in that, that arena. So um, when you look at this stuff and then look at the paperwork, it will be highly classified and, and we have not been able to get to it. We can talk to, uh, we talk to the people who are involved and people who uh, saw the body, bodies, credible people who saw the bodies. And, and we, we have to go from there. But certain things are highly classified. Yeah, I mean, you wrote a book about this, UFOs in the Deep State, yes, uh, yes. a history of the military and shadow government's war against the truth. Now, what's interesting is that I would even go, oh, my gosh, even that term, the Deep State, would, in a way, tip into some of the people that think there's an MJ-12. Um, and I know that you, 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 because of your academic background and your writing and whatnot, you, you clarify what you mean by that. But I think some people out there hear Deep State. I, I know I associate it with this idea of the shadow Illuminati that's been hiding secret investigations for years and it's all classified secret space programs and they, they're the elites and all this stuff, which, again, I know that's an extreme example, but um, it does point to the idea that there, they, there is at least something being hidden from us that is highly, highly classified. Is that what you're saying with that? Or what do you, how would you like to clarify when, your when, use when of the term? When you talk about the deep state, you're talking about um, the continuation of the government. We look at uh, every four years, we elect a president. Yeah. Right? Might be the same guy two times in a row, might be different guys. And when they come in their administration, they bring in their cabinet people, they bring in um, higher level bureaucrats, but there are bureaucrats that go from administration to administration to administration. And they're the ones that are there year after year after year and control this information. And we know that this is going on. I used to say, and I cover it in, in UFOs in the Deep State, that if I'm the president, I can get any answer I want because I'm the president. I go to the director of CIA and I say, I want you to tell me everything about UFOs. And he says to me, well, Mr. President, I'm sorry, I can't tell you that because it's highly classified. My next response is you're fired, bring in your deputy. Hmm. And I go down the line till I get the guy that'll tell me. Well, in talking to a number of people, including Dan Sheehan, um, I found out that may not be true. When Carter became president, he was interviewing, or he was talking to, interrogating his director of central intelligence, which was George H.W. Bush. And there, uh, Carter asked questions about UFOs because Carter was interested in those. And Bush said to him, I would like to remain on in the administration as the director of central <laughs> intelligence. Hmm. And Carter said, I've got my own guy coming in. And Bush said, well, I can't tell you about UFOs because you're the president elect and you don't have the authority yet. So here you've got the director of central intelligence basically telling the guy, you give me the information. And the guy saying, no, not going to do it. You don't have the need to know yet. So there's an example of, of, of the two, two high ranking people butting heads. Now, what's interesting is I think we understand how they managed to divert the attention. And, and we've seen an example of it just recently is the president goes to the new director of central intelligence, his guy. And he says, I need to know about the, uh, about the UFOs. And the director of Central Intelligence says, you know, that's a very complex question, Mr. President. I'm going to have to get back to you on that with a, a report. And I'll have to talk to the 
uh, heads of other departments, not only in the CIA, but uh, the DNI, the DIA, the FBI. Uh, we could go on and on and on with those alphabet instances. Right, right. I would, I would get caught in that and say, well, you know, and then it becomes TDY and the BOQ type stuff. But <laughs> Right, uh, right. Yet I'll get back to you with that report. And then something comes up and diverts the president's attention. Carter was the Iranian hostage crisis. With Clinton, I think it was Monica Lewinsky that kind of diverted his attention from UFOs because now he's caught in this idea where he's going to be impeached and he's got to take a, he's got to deal with that sort of thing. So I think they divert attention and somehow that report never gets written. So now we move to 2021, 2000, here 2020. And we, we get the information about the Tic Tacs and the Navy reports of these objects. And it's uh, the DNI, Director of National Intelligence, is given a mission. We've got 180 days to prepare a report on these activities. Mm-hmm. And uh, we say, okay, we'll go ahead and do that. Well, lo and hold, we get to the 180 days, June 25th of um, 2021. And the report comes out and it's, what a C minus high school report. It's like nine pages. Yeah, it's so disappointing. And it's so says, disappointing. We had 122 reports or 144 reports. I'm sorry, 144 reports. And I'm thinking, what's a report? How many incidents are involved in that 144 reports? Is it like nine mm. incidents and 144 people were interviewed and prepared a report? What does it mean? And it means absolutely nothing. And so what we've seen is how that works. They're told, prepare a report, and that's what they come up with. And I think what really happened is the DNI figured, well, nobody's going to care about it, and we won't, uh, we won't even bother with it. And about three weeks before the report was due, the news media started saying, what's going to happen with this uh, UFO report? And now they're scrambling around. With, in three weeks, we've got to come up with a report. They should have called me. I could have come up with a much better one. <laughs> yeah. Weeks. Any of your books would feel more like disclosure than what they brought us. But but here we are. So they said, well, we want a, a follow-up in 90 days. That was October 25th of last year. And we have nothing. So okay. now they've delayed it for way more than a year. Now we have the defense appropriations bill where they're going to set up a new office and they're going to investigate these things. And I'm thinking, what is it, 1947? We had that in 1947. General Twining, who was the head of the Air Material Command, uh, got a bunch of UFO sightings sent to them to analyze, which which he did. And uh, the outcome of that was, well, we're going to set up an investigation. It's going to have a classification. It's going to be a priority 2A project. And it's going to work out of the Air and Tech Technical, well, the Air Intelli- Air Technical Intelligence Center, which didn't exist at the time, but it's the forerunner to that organization. And uh, here we are 75 years later, and we're going to have a official report now coming out sometime soon. And we got a new office to investigate it. Yeah, it's going to work out really well. I just have no, no uh, enthusiasm for this and no expectation of us getting anything at all from that. It's going to be the same thing we've had year after year after year. How many official reports have they been? There was the CIA's Robertson panel in 1953 that said there's nothing to it. The Condon Committee in 1969 saying, hey, there's nothing to it. And now we're going to have another investigation telling us that basically there's nothing to it. So what do you think the Pentagon was doing then when when they, when they did come forward and say, yeah, we've been looking at this. I mean, is that one person that's just trying to give the public a taste of it just so they'll stop asking questions? Uh, what, what it, The government... It, it's it's 
as if they're teasing the public deliberately to create some kind of psychological buy-in to I, I i don't know i what do you think we know we know based on the robertson panel from 1953 this is cia sponsored uh panel uh mike swords did a lot of research into this dr michael swords of of this and he came up with the idea, the theory that the report was written before the, the, the panel ever met, because he just couldn't believe they would have the, the week-long hearings, five days of hearings, Monday through Friday. And the next morning, um, the, the head of the panel, Robertson, shows up with the completed report. And it, it's shown to a couple of the guys. I mean, what do you do? Go home in the evening and just bat this thing out on his typewriter because he didn't have a computer. So it right, been good a point. And, and uh, they sign off on it. And one of the things they say, well, you know, there's really nothing to this. There's no good evidence. We need to debunk the phenomenon. Debunking is a good thing. Taking the bunk out of it is a wonderful thing. But in the UFO field, it's come to mean to just throw whatever mud you can at the wall to see if it sticks. Right. Uh, just throw out an answer. The best example I, I can think of is, remember Bill Buckner? The only yes. thing people remember about Bill Buckner is he let a drowned ball get between his legs in the World Series and caused his team to lose the World Series. Guy made incredible plays, his crow career, what he's remembered for. He missed that one ground ball. And I think that's where we are with the Robertson panel. They said, you know, just debunk this whole thing. And now we have an official study by an official government agency, the CIA, saying there's, there's nothing to it. We've looked at it. There's nothing to it. And the, the Air Force continues to investigate. The officers appointed to Blue Book, other than Ed Ruppelt, were rapidly anti-saucer, anti-UFO. They were they didn't believe in extraterrestrial visitation. And that was the message that went out to the people who were doing these investigations. We want solutions. We don't want unknowns. And so you have ridiculous solutions to UFO sightings, like a joint military-civilian observation of the moon. One of the cases was written off as that. And a better example, which I should have thought of just a moment ago, is Level Land. Where yeah, have, let's talk about this. What, what exactly well, is going on there? Because I, I was not too familiar with that case. Well, let me let me just get this one point out. Level Land, according to the Air Force, according and it's still in the Project Blue files, was a result of ball lightning, a phenomenon that physicists still argue about whether or not it exists at all. Ball lightning is very short-lived, matter of seconds, 18 inches to two feet in diameter, very small. So this is their ex explanation for Level Land. Level Land began about three o'clock in the morning on November 2nd, 1957, where a landed UFO was seen near Canadian, Texas, seen by a, a military man and a civilian. Each stopped on the other uh, side of a landed UFO. There was an occupant, a creature, they described him as a man wearing a baseball cap, got back into the craft and it took off. That's the first sighting on, on November 2nd. Later in the day, a couple driving near Amarillo, and this is all in the panhandle of Texas, driving toward Amarillo, drove into a mist and was their car stalled. And um, there was some kind of an object involved in this mist. And when it disappeared, they tried to start the car again and it wouldn't start. The battery was completely and totally fried. Their car was eventually towed into Amarillo. They went to the police and said, we'd like to report, where, well, where do we report flying saucers? And the Air Force, or the, the police took down their information, except their names. I can tell you what the people look like. I can give you their ages. I just don't know their names. 
Hmm. They didn't bother to collect that vital bit of information. So anyway, <laughs> right. anyway, they, they did send a policeman out and he couldn't find anything. So now we moved to about 1030 that night. Pedro Sacido, a man described as a sometimes barber, sometimes farmhand. And I always say a, a veteran of the Korean War, because I think that's important to point out as well, was driving toward Leveland. Leveland is... 15 minutes from Lubbock, Texas. For those of you who might have trouble finding it on a map, it's a smaller town, but it's a, it's a nice it's a nice sized little city. Uh, driving toward Leveland, when this bright blue object comes down and lands near his pickup truck, and the engine stalls out, the lights go dim, and the um, radio is filled with static. Sacido dives out of the truck and rolls underneath it to protect himself. The passenger is petrified; he doesn't move. Watching this thing on the ground, it turns to a bright red, bright orange, and it takes off. Once it's gone, Sacido can get his truck started again. He now doesn't want to go to level land because he's afraid he'll encounter this thing again. So he goes to another small town and calls the sheriff. Well, naturally, the police officer, the dispatcher who took the car, believes Sacido is drunk and doesn't want anything to do with him. But then they get, start getting more phone calls. Other people are encountering this thing. Bright red object landing near their car. The engine stalls. The lights go out. The radios are filled with static. They can't get their car started. Nothing happens until this object takes up, takes off, and then they can start their car. There were at least, um, and I say at least, I know of um, 13 different landing locations where witnesses saw that independent of one another. The sheriff, and I hate his name, it's Ware Clem, I always wanted, why couldn't it be like James Bond or Steve McKinsey, something good? <laughs> right, you know? right. Anyhow, um, he eventually has gotten so many phone calls. He later said there were dozens, maybe hundreds of phone calls about this thing in, in a period of about two and a half hours. He needs to go out and look for it. So he leads what I think of as a mini convoy. He's in his car with a deputy. Behind him is Texas State Police. Um, it's now called the Texas Department of Public Safety. It may have been called that in 1957. I'm not sure. And critically behind that is a car with Air Force officers in it. They go out in search of this thing. Now, the Air Force report says that, that the sheriff saw the object in the distance, a streak of light in the distance, maybe in sight for two seconds. Before the Air Force investigation came, the sheriff had talked to a number of reporters, and I found the articles in the newspapers, and the sheriff describes it. He's quoted as saying, well, it was a football shape or oval shaped bright red object. Mm. So obviously he got much closer to that. A fellow named Don Burlinson um, interviewed the sheriff's widow and daughter in, uh, I think it was 2000. The sheriff had passed away. And they said, well, the sheriff got much closer than that. And said that uh, Burlinson should talk to the mechanic for the sheriff's department at the time. So Berlin talked to this guy who told him that the sheriff had brought his car in the next day to see if there was anything wrong with it. I can think of no reason why the sheriff would bring his car in to have it examined unless it was stalled by the object. He got close enough to see the object uh, shape. He got close enough that his car engine stalled. Now, a fellow named Don Berliner. Yeah, there's a lot of Dons in this story. We've had Don Schmidt and I got Don Berliner and Don Berlinson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get to Don Kehoe eventually. Um, but anyhow, um, Berliner talked to the sheriff. I get Berliner. He talked to the sheriff in the mid 1970s, and the sheriff confirmed again that he'd seen an object, a, a, an object close at hand, but didn't talk about his car stalling. 
But anyhow, Don Berlinson is talking to the mechanic and says that the sheriff brought it in to look at. This means to me that his car stalled. And if the sheriff's car stalled, that means the Depart Texas Department of Public Safety car stalled, which means the car with the Air Force officers stalled. Hmm. So we've got Air Force officers who were that close that it was stalled. You can find no documentation other than a couple of newspaper articles mentioning the Air Force officers with, with the sheriff. So the question is, who interrogated the Air Force officers who were involved in this? And what did they learn from that? The guy who came down from Ent Air Force Base, uh, Staff Sergeant Norman Barr, Staff Sergeant is an E-5, mid-level mid -level enlisted guy, spends seven hours investigating the case and goes back to uh, Ent Air Force Base in Colorado Springs and says, yeah, it was a ball lightning that caused the whole thing, which is the explanation that they, they still run with. Uh, you have to wonder what happened to the Air Force officers who were involved. Yeah. But, but there were any number of different witnesses who saw the thing, had their cars stalled. Um, the Air Force managed to divert the conversation. Uh, there's a document in the Project Blue Book files where the Air Force is saying, we don't want to respond yet. We want to wait to see what NICAP has to say, NICAP being the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. NICAP being run by Don Kehoe. You'll want to get that other Don in there. Yes. Kehoe had put out a, a press release or a documentation saying that there were um, nine witnesses to the craft, independent witnesses to the craft. The Air Force said, now there was only three. So now we're having an argument, not about the craft, not about what it did, not about any of the sightings. We're arguing about the number of witnesses. They've managed to divert the conversation. Looking at the Air Force file, you can see where they were saying that because um, in the Air Force reports, the official reports, there's the names of three people who saw an object, although there are six reports in the, uh, in the Blue Book file about this. Not all of them had their car stalled or not all of them had a, um, um, saw, saw, the, saw an object, saw a light instead. Uh, Kehoe talks about nine. Going through the Blue Book file, I can find the names of five witnesses who talked about the, uh, about the object. So the Air Force wasn't being truthful either. And then if you look at the totality of the case, as I said, there were nine witnesses at 13 separate locations independently reporting this. And the sheriff told reporters they had gotten dozens of phone calls. I think he said hundreds. I always say dozens, but he said hundreds of phone calls about this thing. Now, it's, it, it, it stops around 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning of, of November 3rd. But at about the same time, minutes later, hour later, at um, the White Sands Missile Range, now White, Sand, uh, White Sands Proving Ground, now White Sands Missile Range. Two MPs on duty see an object uh, close at hand, comes down and basically lands about 50 yards in front of them. The Air Force wrote it off and said, well, they, they, uh, they saw the moon because you know the moon can always come down below the horizon so that it, it's silhouetted against the mountains there and, and you, the point simply is they, they saw it close enough. I talked to uh, Glenn Toy, who's one of the MPs, and it always, it always angers me that when I read the Air Force file on this, they try to smear these guys by saying, well, they were young men, they weren't right. highly educated, they weren't well-trained, and, and they were caught up in the hysteria of the UFO sightings. And I'm thinking, no, they weren't, because this was 1957. There is no social media. There no, is no Instagram. There is no Facebook. 
They don't know what's happened in Level Land because Level Land is four hours away. The news media isn't reporting on it until the next morning, and they went on duty or before any of the reports would have been made anyway, so they wouldn't have heard them. So no, they're not caught up in the hysteria of the moment. They're seeing something new and fresh to them, which they report as they're required to do. And the Air Force said, well, you know, they were young men. They were 20, 21 years old, so, you know, a bit, bit immature. And I'm thinking, you know, the military entrusts <laughs> an awful lot of important equipment to very young men. Yeah. And I'm thinking- it's ridiculous. At, at 19, I was a helicopter pilot and aircraft commander in Vietnam. I was 19. These guys are older than I am. They're probably <laughs> much more mature than I was at 19. Right, right. Um, and, and so you, you've got that sighting going on. And then on November 6th, you've got another series of sightings near Oro Grande, New Mexico, where a number of cars were stalled by the UFO. And the, the man that reported it, a fellow named James Stokes, uh, had been going from Alamogordo to El Paso. He worked at Holloman Air Force Base. He was an engineer there and talked about how his car had been stalled. He gets out of the car. They watch the thing for a few minutes. It goes off and he can get his car stolen. When he gets back to Amarillo, he, I'm sorry, uh, to uh, uh, Alamogordo, he calls his boss, a major at Holloman Air Force Base and tells him what he'd seen. He says, can I tell the media about this? And the, the major says, well, were you on duty at the time? Was it on Air Force property? He said, no. I said, well, go ahead and talk about it. We don't care. So Stokes happened to know Jim Lorenzen, who was one of the directors of the Air Phenomena Research Organization, who lived in Alamogordo at the time, and go over to talk to him. And he and Cor Lorenzen noticed that um, Stokes had a slight sunburn on half his face and one of his arms. Hmm. Think uh, Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Right. Not as prominent as his um, sunburn in Close Encounters, but still... A slight, a slight reddening of the skin. And a reporter for the local station in Alamogordo, Lorenzen's took um, Stokes to that. The real point here is the Air Force tried to smear him, saying, well, Stokes was claiming to be an engineer, but he didn't have a college degree in engineering, and he hadn't, wasn't registered with the state for engineering or something like that. And then we have the Air Force officers at Holloman Air Force Base. Well, of course he was an engineer. He was working on an engineering, working as an engineer for us. We had uh, hired him for his engineering expertise. So the Air Force is saying, well, he doesn't have a degree in engineering. And the Air Force is saying, well, yeah, we're using him as an engineer. So he wasn't embellishing his resume. So they tried to smear him that way as they tried to smear the, uh, the MPs at um, uh, White Sands. And as they tried to belittle the witnesses in Amarillo, or Amarillo in Level Land. I, I don't know why Amarillo is stuck in my mind. <laughs> but I mean, right. by saying, saying well, Sacido was, you know, he was an itinerant barber or something like that, and, and just belittling him because um, he was a Hispanic descent. Um, and, and it just, for me, that just infuriates me because the guy gave credible information. And had he been standalone, it, it probably would have worked, but he wasn't. There were all kinds of other people. Um, not only white men talking about this, but also uh, African-Americans who were involved in this as well. Um, so you've got a, a diverse core of people who reported it to the sheriff, uh, the thing in, in Leveland to the sheriff there. So you have, you have that going for it. So it's a, I think it's a very strong case because you have multiple chains of evidence. You have the testimony of the witnesses. And yeah, I know that the, the, the skeptics like to say, well, it's anecdotal testimony. And my question is, when does anecdotal testimony become scientific observation? What do you need to transition from uh, anecdotal testimony to scientific observation and uh, credible 
testimony. Yes, we all know that, that, that eyewitness testimony can be horribly unreliable, but when you have witnesses at 13 separate locations, multiple witnesses telling yeah. you basically the same thing, you've now moved it beyond anecdotal testimony. Then Absolutely. you have it interacting with the environment, stalling the car engines, putting the headlights out, that sort of thing. Then there's a landing trace. Uh, according to Don Berlinson, after he talked to the sheriff's um, widow, he learned that a rancher, I think it was northwest of Level Land, not that far, had found a burned area on his property. And so Berlinson went and talked to the widow of the rancher. So now we have secondhand testimony of a burned area. And you go, well, that's secondhand testimony. But the daughter of the rancher was still alive. And the father and the daughter went out and saw the burned area. And I suspect, I suspect um, the sheriff was with them as well when he saw it. So now we have another chain of evidence. We have a landing trace where if they'd gathered proper evidence at that time, what might they have learned? But the Air Force was so busy trying to dismiss the case as unimportant and arguing a nightcap about the number of witnesses that the proper investigation was not completed at Level Land. And Level Land does not stand alone. The first case in, in the book is from 1909, where a, um, a motorcyclist, 1909 motorcyclist, he just cracks me up, in England was driving along and the headlight on his motorcycle went out and in the field nearby he saw a glowing orb and when the orb took off, his headlight came back, 1909. Uh, the latest um, case in the book is like 2020. And yeah. some of that has to do with animal reactions. And we know these electromagnetic fields that are generated by some UFOs, but not all, uh, do affect animals. So you get animal reactions there. In fact, we found, I report on four cases where cars change color. One guy uh, said that, yeah, one guy said he came home and his wife wanted to know if he bought a new car after he'd seen a, clo a close approach of a UFO, bought a new car because, and I don't remember the car turned from gray to green or green to gray, but she thought he bought a new car because car changed color. So there's four cases of that. And then uh, somebody pointed out to me just the other day, well, you didn't mention Barney and Betty Hill. There were spots on the trunk of their car um, that changed color because of their, their interaction with the UFO, that sort of thing. So there's, there's five cases like that. And, and we have, um, I think Frank, Fran Ridge and uh, uh, the late Eric Herr collected cases of compasses being affected by UF, close approach of UFOs. So that kind of reinforces the electromagnetic thing. I think they had 140, 150 cases about that. So we look at all of that sort of thing so we can make a strong case that it's some kind of an electromagnetic field that causes these problems. The Condon Committee rejected the idea because they could think of no way that if you manage to stall an engine with an electromagnetic field, the removal of that field would cause the engine to restart spontaneously, which is a misnomer in the UFO field because looking at the report that Mark Roderker did on vehicle interference and something over 400 cases of just vehicle inter interference, uh, it appears that in the majority of the cases, the cars did not start spontaneously. The driver took some action. In some cases, it said the car operated normally after the UFO was gone. Others said I could start my car easily when the UFOs were gone. In one of the uh, cases in Level Land, the guy said that he couldn't get his car started until the UFO was gone and then it started, he'd get it started. One guy in Level Land did say his car started spontaneously, insisted that that was what happened. I think he did start it himself. He just didn't realize he had started his car. As it was, uh, when the when the thing was gone, I think he was just so excited about 
the the event that he didn't realize he'd started the car himself. But I mean, there's the case of somebody claiming it was started spontaneously. So we look at all of that sort of thing, and we have this small core of sightings that produce multiple chains of evidence, and it could have been much more important had it been treated legitimately in 1957 instead of the Air Force trying to, we need to explain it away and get people off onto something else. What in the world is going on with the military trying to explain it away? I mean, there there are a lot of... Mm, there are a lot of different theories here that you could come up with, but uh, I'm wondering, is it that they do know something more about what this is and they it's so top secret they've been hiding it, or they actually have no idea what it is and they don't want to be, uh, they, ju they just want to make it seem like they're much more in control of things. Um, yeah, what, what, what is your take? The... Uh... Military, the government has known since 1947 what's going on. They recovered one in Roswell. That point yeah. they knew. That point they knew. And you and you can see a change in the attitude uh, in the newspaper articles. After Kenneth Arnold made his sighting on June 24th, the newspapers began to all over the country began reporting on these these sightings. We get to July 8th, 1947, and we get the story that the um, Roswell Army Airfield captures a saucer in the Roswell region. And then three hours later, it comes out, no, no, it's just weather balloon, no big deal. The next day, July 9th, the story newspaper, AP story, that the Army and Navy moved to suppress stories of UFOs whizzing through the atmosphere. Why suddenly do they care on July 9th? They picked one up on July 8th and they knew what the hell is going on. I think what has happened is the technology has been impossible for us to crack. We don't understand it at all, even this far in, into the future from 1947, 75 years ago. I think that it made sense in 1947 because you didn't want our competitors in the world to understand we've suddenly been presented with this technology that is incredible. If we can figure it out, they're, they're gonna have no prayer of, 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 of engaging us in a conflict, because if they do, they'll be swept from the sky. The UFOs are clearly far superior to the fighter planes, especially of 1947. I think what's happened that now is, as we look to understanding it, if you take a VCR, that's a video cassette recorder for those of you who are really, really young, and a videotape, <laughs> yes. a television monitor, and a power pack back to Merlin the Magician, and you say to them, duplicate this, he can't do it because to duplicate it, you have to understand two things that are invisible, electricity and magnetism. He had no concept. There would be no way he could look at that black ribbon of videotape. And if he knows how to, how to decode it, he can see pictures and sound, color pictures and sound, but he can't because he doesn't know about magnetism. He doesn't know about electricity. And I think the technology that, that fell in Roswell in 1947 is so far beyond us that we haven't figured it out yet. We continue to work on it and apply our technology as it grows. But I think after you had a, a larger number of people in 1947 aware of what happened, that pool of, of people um, diminished over time until there's a small core still working on it. And if they make some kind of breakthrough, then they will bring in who they need to, to uh, continue on with that. But I think it's a small core of people. The other thing you have to remember, and we know we get back to the deep state. 
The deep state is protecting the information because they don't want it out for one reason. It would undercut their power. Mm-hmm. And the deep state is all about power and all about money. And anything that threatens their power and their money, they're going to suppress. And we, have, we know from our history, anytime a technologically superior civilization meets a more primitive technology, that primitive technology in society ceases to exist. Not necessarily through conquest, not necessarily through warfare, the mere introduction of the technology radically alters that society. And we can look at example after example throughout our history of that happening. Now, if you're suddenly presented with a technology that would um, possibly wipe out the petroleum industry, now you've got a big problem because suddenly, you know, maybe there's something the size of a uh, two AA batteries that would power your car for a month. You know, yeah. you no longer need oil, uh, need gasoline, you know, and you've got this power source that is so great and so small that uh, it, it replaces petroleum in that respect. Now you've, you've crushed an industry. And what would it mean about to other industries as well, depending on what, what if they could present um, cures for cancer? You get cancer and you go in and they, they use their tricorder on you <laughs> or whatever that device is that Dr. <laughs> right. Um, and it cures you of your cancer uh, in minutes rather than having to go through chemotherapy, which can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. You've now destroyed that industry as well, and, and, and you've upset that apple cart. And I think what we're looking at is the deep state protecting their power because they know what's going on, but you don't. And uh, by keeping that secret, you now suddenly, you suddenly believe, not suddenly, you believe that interstellar flight is impossible, even though they know that it is, it is possible because they have examples of it. But I think that's the point of uh, looking at it from the point of view of the deep state. So it's not necessarily the military. What you do is you p- appoint officers who are well aware of what is expected of them. Back in 1948, um, the military, the officers at Project Sign, which was the original UFO investigation, uh, produced what they called an estimate of the situation. This was, they looked at a number of UFO sightings that they thought were good sightings. I think some of them are explainable now under today's technology, but, but a number of sightings that were puzzling to them. And they um, created this estimate of the situation, which up, went up to the chief of staff of the Air Force, Hoyt S. Vandenberg, concluding that the UFOs, the flying saucers were interplanetary. Well, we now know they wouldn't be interplanetary because we, we would have found those civilizations on those other planets had they existed. So clearly they're interstellar, which is a much more technologically difficult task to complete. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they, they know that interstellar flight, uh, Vandenberg said, no, you have not proved the case. You know, you, you've leaped to this conclusion, it's, 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 it's extraterrestrial, and you have not proven your case, and sends the, back, the report back down. But what is key is all the officers, with one or two exceptions, and all the civilians working with Project Sign suddenly found themselves looking for new jobs. You know, they were transferred out of their jobs there around Project Sign and doing something else, and the, the investigation was left in the hands of a low-ranking lieutenant and, and one civilian. And... You know, if you're an Air Force officer, you can read the writing on the wall. If I believe that UFOs are flying, flying saucers are uh, interstellar craft, my career is in jeopardy. So I'm going to ignore that. And that's what happened after 19, 
1940, after 1948, when that report was kicked back, until Ruppelt came in and he was given orders to revitalize the project and it became Project Blue Book. And while he was there, they did try to consolidate the information and gather good information. I think he was overwhelmed by the sightings from the summer of 1952, the Washington Nationals, for example. And I think um, there's 701 unidentified cases in the Project Blue Book files, 300 of them come from the summer of 1952. So you can see the kind of workload that was uh, spread under a very few officers and people in, in Project Blue Book. Um, but I think that once the Robertson panel met in January of 1953, and once again, we get the idea there's nothing to this, they bring in another officer who's rapidly anti-saucer, anti-UFO. And from that point on, that's basically who got the jobs. I think also a number of them realized that this is a dead end job. I've screwed something up somewhere and people are mad at me. And that's why I end up at Project Blue Book. If I was Rupelt, by the way, I'd have been really hosed if I was recalled to active duty during the Korean War and my job was to go out and look at UFOs or flying saucers. <laughs> right, right. If I'm if I'm recalled, that, that's what happened to me in the National Guard. I was recalled to uh, go to Iraq. If I'd stayed back behind doing some menial task like that, I'd have been really, really mad as my my unit deploys to Iraq if I didn't go with them. So yeah, I, I can see that sort of thing. But um, the last guy in there, Hector Quintanella, I think came in as a captain and retired as a lieutenant colonel out of that job. So they... Um, he got his regular promotions and everything else, but it's pretty much a dead end job. And he was um, rapidly anti-saucer as well. So uh, I, I think they organized it that way. And then there's a, this cabal in the, uh, the government. And again, you go through the administrative files for Project Blue Book and you find lots of letters from high ranking civilians in various aspects of the government saying, we got to get rid of this project. We've got to take it out of ATEC and move it into the office of the secretary of the Air Force for information so they don't have the prestigious intelligence background. Now it's a public affairs type thing. Um, and, right. and so you see how they've degraded it that way. And I think it was all part of the plan to convince people there's nothing to UFOs. Come up with an explanation, throw as many explanations of the wall as you can and see which ones stick. Roswell, of course, as you remember, was a weather balloon. And then the Air Force investigated in the mid 1990s and they said, well, you know, we were wrong about it. It wasn't a weather balloon. It was a uh, weather balloon. It was called <laughs> right. Mogul. And I did a thing on my blog just the other day, yesterday or the day before, driving what I hoped would be the stake through Project Mogul because there's, there's a flaw in their, their reasoning. Um, Brazel brought debris into the sheriff's office in 1947 and if you uh, were shown the debris being the remains of a weather balloon at that time, there's no reason for them to go out to the ranch. There's no reason for any of that other activity to take place. Um, so I, th I think it's a flaw. That's all explained in um, on my blog uh, about how that works out. Yeah. Well, what about this uh, idea? Who did I hear this from? Was it Leslie Keene, maybe? Somebody somebody was on Joe Rogan's podcast saying that Roswell, they they, they had kids uh, who were challenged, uh, mentally challenged that they made look like UFOs and as a way of scaring the Russians or some something like that. I mean, is, is, is that bogus? Yeah, absolutely bogus. My God, really? 
<laughs> it sounds pretty bogus to me. A bunch of kids. The other one was it was a some kind of an experiment that went wrong, and they were using Japanese captured Japanese from World War II who were killed because that would explain the sort stature of of, of right. Um, I, the Air Force in nineteen uh, when they when they did their investigation in the nineteen nineties did us one favor. They eliminated every terrestrial explanation except Project Mogul. Don Schmidt and I and Don, uh, um, um, Stan Friedman and uh, Don Berliner and a number of other people who had done investigations in the Roswell case, we'd also done that. We knew it wasn't an aircraft accident. We knew it wasn't some kind of uh, rocket from White Sands. We had all the documentation to, to reveal that. And the Air Force validated that and said, yes, that there was nothing like that. They came up with Project Mogul. Uh, we had looked at Mogul and said, no, it can't be Project Mogul. Um, because uh, it's weather balloons, crying <laughs> out loud. Uh, right. But but they, they ended up claiming it was flight number four of the Project Mogul experiments being conducted in, in uh, out of Alamogordo and that it was highly classified. Well, what was going on in Alamogordo wasn't classified. The ultimate purpose was, but what was they were doing in uh, New Mexico was not classified. Uh, and flight number four, the culprit they settled on, the documentation says it didn't fly. It was the flight was canceled. The next flight was flight number five that flew the next day, and they know where it came down. So mogul doesn't work. It's it, the documentation proves it didn't work, um, and uh, the other activities didn't work. They didn't care about the balloons uh, being found by anybody. There was a number of cases where they didn't get to the balloons. They knew about where they came down, but the terrain was rough, so they just left them where they fell. Um, and and, and uh, there apparently was on some of the flights a tag saying, if you find this, contact us in Al at Alamogordo to let us know where the balloons came down. Interesting. So, uh, mogul doesn't work. So the Air Force eliminated all those explanations. If there had been an, uh, a, a, an experiment like you talk about, or them, I don't know why they would uh, use children to fool the Russians because they suppressed any information about the bodies. Um, and, yeah. and worked very hard to hide the information. So, I mean, logically, that makes no sense because the Russians didn't, all the Russians knew was it was a weather balloon. Right. And, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so, no, it's, it's, it's just had they been able to find anything better than Mogul, they would have trotted it out in 19, 1995, 1994 when they issued their big report. Now, to their credit, uh, Colonel Weaver, who was the officer in charge of that, he had all the documentation for Mogul and he published it all too. So that's why we know an awful lot about Mogul that we wouldn't have known had he not made sure that information was published. So we can look at the, the records and say, you know, flight number four was canceled. Very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, tell me this. I mean, you also talk about in Level Land how there were similar sightings or similar experiences in uh france and south america uh does the deep state have its hand as much in those places too were they able to knock those out i always wonder about because you hear it all the time in the u.s I know you don't hear about that but uh you know i mean i i don't know i i'd be curious how quickly black helicopters can get out to france if they need to um how how much is everybody in on it uh so yeah first talk about those experiences anyways well, as, and, as you mentioned as you mentioned in 1954 there was a lot of these sightings in france and in south america 
right um, where people were seeing the craft on the ground seeing having their engine stalled and that sort of thing in one case the guy uh, was awakened and went out toward the toward the ufo and saw the little guys little creatures as he started to approach them he was going to grab one they flashed some light at him and he was paralyzed and they all scampered back to the craft and it took off and he uh once it was gone, once the light was shut off from him, he was able to move again. He called the police who came out to uh, look at it. The, the object had landed on a railroad bed and they measured the, uh, took measurements there and determined the object was at least 30 tons. But I think the, the problem there is you run into the, the stories. The, the United States kind of takes the lead in all of these, this sort of thing, the UFOs. And I think it's because it blew up so bigly in the, big in the United States in 1947. Uh, the, the Australians, and this kind of leads to where I was going on this, the Australians in the 1950s decided they, that there was something to it and they wanted to investigate it. What's, what's the one thing they did? They contacted the United States Air Force. Right. And they, they had gotten a hold of a book by Kehoe and they said, well, this is just incredible stuff. And the Australian Air Force officers asked the American Air Force officers about Kehoe and they said, well, you can't trust anything he said. The man is just... Uh, a buffoon as a liar you just can't trust the stuff turns out that much of what kehoe published we've learned since was dead on the money he's made some mistakes in his interpretation of it but that's to be expected we'd all make mistakes when we're dealing with this sort of topic but the point simply is the australians were dissuaded from uh, conducting a solid investigation simply because the americans said no there's really nothing to it and i think that's kind of the thing that went on has gone on at least in um, uh, Europe, the European sightings and that sort of thing is they take the lead from the Americans on this because of what went on in 1947. Uh, so you start talking about alien creatures and people just don't want to hear about it. I mean, if you go back, if you could go back to the 1950s, 1960s, stories of seeing alien creatures were very few and very far between. If you saw the creatures, you, you were subject to ridicule. When Lonnie Zamora made his sighting in 1964, which is, proves this point perfectly, the FBI agent involved, Arthur Burns, suggested to him not to mention the creatures. Not because he was trying to suppress the information. He said that, you know, people, people make fun of you if you talk about seeing the, the alien creatures. And of course, that information got out and the people made fun of Lonnie Zamora for seeing the alien creatures. And I, and I think the... Um, type of sightings that we were getting in, in France in 1954 that involved a, a number of sightings of, of the creatures and them paralyzing people with some kind of array and uh, stalling the car engines and things like that. I think that was seen as just being too radical. And so in the United States, we pretty much ignored it. I think Jacques Vallée collected a lot of that, da that data and he published a great deal of it in his uh, Passport uh, Magonia. Yeah. 1969. And, and by the way, that was a source for the Level Land book as well. His, his book, Rodiger's book, and a lot of other things like that were very beneficial to me in putting together the Level Land book because I had access to that information as well as additional information about that. But you've got any number of sightings like that in France with landing traces left behind, with um, uh, the same sorts of things that we saw with Leveland, with multiple multiple witnesses at multiple locations, uh, and then you have the same thing in not quite as much in South America as you did in France, but you have some of the same thing going on in South America at the time. And we look at um, other times. You know, we have one or two people involved in a sighting where the 
um, the car is stalled and that sort of thing. The Condon Committee looked at two cases of, of this, and, and it's reported in the book as well. And one of them, it's, it seems that the woman who claimed that her car was stalled by the UFO, this car was in very bad repair. I think the check engine light was on, you know, the old joke, oh, the check engine light on. Right. I've got a nice little icon on my car now. My check engine light came on. I've driven <laughs> enough to get that icon. Um, but uh, her car was in bad repair. And the problem she talked about probably were a manifestation of the poor repair of her car. The other case was a little bit stronger, but the, of course, the, the, the cotton pity committee just ignored it, as I said before, because there was no mechanism they could think of that would stall the car and allow it to start spontaneously, so they ignored, ignored that. They mentioned, I think, Leveland one time, explaining that they didn't bother with the investigation there, because they wouldn't be able to find the cars. Yeah. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. So, I mean, and, and there's there, these kinds of sightings are are seen around the world as well, where the cars are stalled and that sort of thing. So it's not a phenomenon um, that, that is lo localized in the American Southwest. Uh, I think in, in, um, in not long after the Leveland sightings, there was a car, police car stalled in Chicago, for example, that's, that's reported. And as I say, I've got the, in, in the book, there's uh, reports from all around the world of this kind of uh, problem being reported, not necessarily as in detailed as the stuff in the Americans, because of course we're here in the United States and it's much easier to get a hold of that information than it is to get information from uh, some of the foreign countries because um, my Spanish isn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> right. I can read it to a, to, to a point, but, uh, but you know, it's, it's just not that good. And uh, but a lot of the a lot of the colleagues I have in foreign countries, I just talked to uh, Klaus Sven, who's from Sweden, um, just a couple of couple of weeks ago. Um, speaks English like an American almost. Wow! I mean, very very fluent in the language and is very very helpful in in doing some of this this kind of work. Um, so you get the Scandinavian uh, aspect of it as well. Yeah, I, I'm also just curious about this idea of this uh, glowing orange orb thing. Uh, it feels, uh, I, hmm, it's just interesting the varieties of different craft, or, or even if it is a craft, um, seems it seems as if uh, I, I guess uh, do you you believe it actually was? It was just a variation on the fly. It was a different model of a flying saucer. Is that well, what you I think it was? I think one of the problems we have is a matter of perception. If yeah. you look at a tank car, a railroad tank car straight on, uh, it's going to look like a big cigar-shaped object. If, you, if you're looking at it from a 45-degree angle, depending on the brightness of the object and that sort of thing and the conditions under which you're looking at it, you're going to think it's more egg-shaped. And if you're looking at the very end of it, it's going to look circular. It's the same yeah. thing. It's not changing shape or anything else. It's not a number of different kinds of craft. It's a single craft, a matter of perspective or perception. I just did an article uh, on the blog again, where they're the, using the McMinnville picture and a picture taken in France, I think in 1954, of an object that is very similar, talking about repeatability. You know, we, we don't have that kind of thing. Ted Phillips, who did a lot of um, landing trace cases, had said at one point, if you tell me what the landing gear looked like, I can tell you what the craft looked like. 
Well, that's an essence, that's an essence of repeat, repeatability. You know, if he knows that much about, it, you know, if he's got a triangular shaped gear, it looks like this. If it's got four landing legs, it looks like this. Hmm. Um, that suggests that there is a commonality from case to case to case. And so I, I mentioned that sort of thing. We don't get a lot of repeatability, but I think it's all again because of percept perception. And I know that there's cases where, well, the UFO changed shape. I don't think it did. I think it moved in such a way that it looked like it changed shape, but it really didn't. And if you look at a disc sort of on edge, it may look more cigar shaped then, and, and then it tilts a different way. And then it takes on a more disc shaped. Uh, yeah. Appearance. This is so, so fascinating, by the way. I, I no. Oh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. So, so you think that essentially, um, it it, it depends on. Well, first of all, we already don't know what it is, really. I mean, we we haven't been able to figure out even any of the what, what is driving these things to move. But then to to assume that we can get it by a sighting in the sky, um, is well, it's just a fool's game. Yeah, I think what we're what we got to do is more scientific gathering of the data, which Fran Ridge again is doing with his Madar network, which is based on the originally based on the idea that uh, some ufos have these magnetic fields that can be detected uh, and so they've got he's got a series of madar nodes around the world as a matter of fact not as many as he would like um, as sort of an alarm system and they're recording data so that if there's a ufo sighting and the, the alarms are triggered they can coordinate the dating they haven't had a lot of luck coordinating the data correlating the data but they have had some. And, and it's kind of like Evie Loeb from Harvard, yes. who's a, attempting to uh, set up a network of telescopes around the world to look for other intruders into the um, solar system that they had passed in, uh, what, uh, 2000 or whatever it was, that object that came into the solar system, which they, they claim was the first extraterrestrial visitor to the solar system, not necessarily piloted or artificial, it could have been an asteroid slung out from another solar system, but some kind of extraterrestrial object passed through the solar system at a speed that would suggest it had been traveling for literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. I know we just sent a, we just sent in 1976, we launched what the, the Viking probes to kind of explore the solar system and continue on beyond that. I think it's just moved outside of the solar system and they expect it to encounter another planetary system or another star system in 80,000 years. So, you know, that, because it's not traveling anywhere near relativistic speeds. Yeah. So it's going to take a long time to get there. I mean, and, and then when you get to relativistic speed, you've got all kinds of other problems you have to worry about. Um, for example, moving moving that quickly through the through through space, you're in essence bombarding your craft with hydrogen atoms, which should irradiate the entire crew unless you have some great shielding. And how do you power the thing? And then, of course, to get up to relativistic speeds, it takes a long time. And when you get to the other end, you got to slow down. That takes a long time. Um, <laughs> these are great considerations people people don't talk about this stuff that much well I, you know i looking at that so if there's not a way to short circuit that thing that that suggests that interstellar flight may be impossible but then how do we explain ufos is it time travelers from our future and if so um 
do you get into do you get into any of that stuff? I mean, I know that kind of bends the uh, maybe the PhD side of you a little bit to start. Talking I always about time I always travel. say I always say my favorite theory is time travelers because that's that's a lot of fun to play with. <laughs> yeah, and I did a, I did a series of science fiction novels uh, in the in the um, '80s with a friend Bob Cornett, where we we sent uh, a mercenary force back to Texas in 1836 to win the Battle of the Alamo. Oh, interesting! With, with modern weapons, and so that's fun. You've got you've got uh, you 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 got uh, you know thirty guys showing up at the Alamo with modern weapons, and Travis wonders, well, you know, how much help is this going to be? So, well, we can stop anything the Mexicans throw at us, and they're up on they're up on the parapets, tip, picking off the American the Mexican officers at a thousand yards with their. Um, um, uh, 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 rep weapons they've got mortars and claymore mines i mean what's the quickest way to break up a human wave attack right way more mines and you're going to take out an awful lot of the soldiers and so they win <laughs> the battle of the alamo and they, they they try to get back home and they can't do it because everything is altered so much and then it's a series of books they end up at gettysburg and then they end up at custer's last stand but they're now they're trying to put history back to the way it belongs since they screwed it up so badly at the Alamo. So. That is interesting. That's very interesting. But, I mean, that's, and that's the point, you know, time travel is a fun thing to talk about, but you know, uh, there's, there's so many paradoxes involved in travel into the past. Uh, we all are traveling through time in one sense. I know that uh, as you move toward relativistic speeds, the, the time dilation comes into play, which means time slows down for the ship the Earth continues to to travel around the Sun. One day equals one day, but it toward relativistic speeds. You know, one one day now suddenly is a minute, and so you're not aging as quickly as people on Earth. And so, if you can get out to the other solar systems and get back, what are you going to come back to? The the society is going to change so radically by the time you can get back. Just think of the changes that we've had in the last forty or fifty years. We've gone from um, uh, um, black and white TV with three channels to uh, now massive color. T well, your little 21 inch TV was the big deal. Get a 21 inch screen on your TV. And now I was looking at one the other day with what was it, 75 inches go. Wow, this is huge. Yeah. What, what room do you put that in <laughs> type thing? And the colors are so great and vivid and that sort of thing. Uh, the internet, my, my cell phone is more powerful than the starship communicator. I have the entire knowledge of the human race at my fingertips and my cell phone for crying out loud. Do you think any of it came from Roswell? Any of this technology that we have now, were they able to grab I, I, any I of it? If you, if you look back at the evolution of the products, you can see it growing slowly. I know that Corso said, well, we, the technology of the transistor, for example, came out of Roswell and you go back and you see that we're doing stuff with transistors in the thirties. You know, yeah. I, I've, I've always said that, as I said before, um, I don't think we've figured out much of what was on that ship. I think maybe we got some ideas about composites, which are pretty easy to understand. And, and we've done a lot of things with the composites, but, but I, the point I was making you know, on the time travel thing is, so you, you've got the crew that went out come back at relativistic speeds and they show up in a society that's going to be radically altered from where they left and, and the things they could, it would be like, uh, like us going back um, to the 19, 1900s or the, uh, around the time of the American Revolution. I mean, we have all this knowledge of what we saw, but this, if we'd come out of that society and gone back to it, 
um, it, it, or we'd left that society, we'd come back to today and things have been so badly altered. So I mean, we wouldn't understand it. We would be completely lost. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, certainly I, well, that's why I, I, I fear any experiment like a Hadron Collider for instance, um, something like that that has the potential to destroy the universe feels somewhat dangerous. Um, I don't know if the government has ever done time travel experiments. I've certainly interviewed people who have claimed such things, claimed they've been a part of secret U.S. undercover time travel programs, and I'm going, really? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you don't buy it? No, I don't buy it at all. But 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 again, when I did UFOs in the deep state, and I was looking at the idea, was there a secret space program? And the answer is yes, there was. And we've got documentation for it. But it didn't take people to Mars to fight, fight the aliens on Mars. If the program, I think, was closed down in 1989 because they determined it was too dangerous. I'm thinking dangerous. You know, the, the stuff NASA's doing isn't dangerous. You're going to shut down this other program. I think it was run out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. And there's documentation in the UFOs in the deep state about this. So it's it's not something that's completely and totally uh, bogus, yeah. but it's not it's not quite as dramatic as a lot of these people who said, well, I was part of the deep, uh, a part of this, this program. Uh, it's not quite as dramatic as they are making claims for it, but there was a secret space program. And there's indications of, of that sort of thing in, in various documentation as well. That's wild. Wait, let me ask you one more thing. Before this has been great. You've you've given me so much time, so I'm very appreciative, Kevin. I mean, this is fascinating. Um, well, I'm expecting the check in the mail, so there you go. <laughs> oh crap! Somebody buy this man's book. Um, buy all the books. Level Land is is now available, uh, along with hundreds and hundreds of well. I mean, art, article things you've written over the years. Um, we'll, we'll link to your we'll link to your website. We'll uh, yeah, definitely check out. I mean, he's all over Amazon with these books. Um, yeah, let's see. I, it, the question I had was this: so you said that you don't believe we've able to do, been able to do anything with the technology. Uh, what about people that claim that the the government has flying saucers? And, and sometimes, oh, you can tell the difference between one of theirs and one of ours. Is that complete bunk, too? I don't I don't buy any of that. I don't buy any of that. I know that you know, we talk about Area 51 and Area 51 is where we're doing developing the next generation of of, of, of military aircraft. And we go back to 1950s technology and we talk about the SR-71 and this we still don't know what the capabilities of that aircraft are because it's still classified. The one thing that's always cracked me up that uh, we fly in the SR-71 over the Soviet Union and if a Soviet fighter could get up high enough to engage the SR-71 and got on its six o'clock position and fired missiles at it, the SR-71 was fast enough to outrun the missiles. Hmm. Cracks wow. me up. Um, you know, and that's 1950s technology for crying out loud. We just pulled a, a, one of our latest fighters out of the depths of the ocean. It, I it, uh, crashed going into, was it the Kitty Hawk? Um, and fell into the ocean. We Over in the South China Sea or over near China, it sank to a depth of um, 12,000 feet. We just got it out today when we knew, needed to recover it so the Chinese and the Russians couldn't get it. Um, but, you know, it's what are the capabilities of these aircraft and what do they look like? Uh, I've seen pictures of the um, F-117 
that it looks for all the world like a dome-shaped, disc-shaped craft with a triangular uh, landing gear coming in for landing. Right. You know, and, it's, and it's an airplane. Um, and what about, uh, uh, we, we've got all these sightings of triangles. And I just wonder if that is our technology now, as opposed to alien technology, because the, the, the number of sightings of triangular shaped craft almost outstrips everything else that uh, is being reported into the UFO community. Just literally thousands of sightings of, um, of, of the triangular shaped objects today. And once, once upon a time, they were few and far between. And now it just seems it's overwhelmed the entire uh, UFO um, reporting phenomena. So you wonder, is that, is that our technology that we're looking at as opposed to alien technology? But you don't think it's the Roswell stuff. It's just another. I don't think so. I just don't think I don't see any leaps of technology that would suggest sort of a uh, just a quantum leap forward, uh, uh, something that just doesn't make sense. How did we come up with that? It just seems you can you can see the evolution of these things. I don't know if yeah. you remember the first cell phones. It looked like a brick. Right. Yes. And now, you know, you carry it around in your pocket. Um and, and the technology to, you know, I can call, I can call anywhere in the world on my cell phone without bothering with an operator and that sort of thing. Or the cheap GPS system, you know, uh, which may be more of, more of a bane than a boon because uh, it, it allows people, well, you are right here on this date. <laughs> Your cell yes. phone thinks off this tower. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe the deep state goes, okay, you know what? We'll let this piece of technology out because that's going to help us more. But this we can't give them. I mean, I, I, I could see them being discerning in that way. I just don't. Yes, yes, there certainly is an element of that in it. I just don't think we've, we've figured out the technology. I think it's, it's kind of like, like what Jeff Goldblum said in um, Jurassic Park, life will find a way. I think, um, I think technology will find a way. That's if, true. <laughs> if, 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 if there was some quantum leap in the technology, I think it would leak, leak somehow. Somebody would see a way of making a lot of money on it would leak into our uh, society. I just, because you'd need so many other people involved in that research. And I think it's now very closed, very, very closely held looking for that quantum leap so they can control it when, when they, when they figure it out. Do you have any top secret knowledge? I have lots of top secret knowledge. <laughs> Are you aware of your top secret? Is it, is it so secret? You don't even know what it is. I mean, what, what is it? <laughs> yes, I you. It, it was so secret. I didn't even know what it was. No, I have a great deal of top secret knowledge. Some of it is still probably current and some of it is not, but it doesn't relate to UFOs. I've always oh, said in the UFO field, what I should do is put on my uniform, go over to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and have my picture taken near one of the buildings. So yeah, I just came inside and saw little bodies. What's the big deal? Uh, yeah, that's what I'm wondering about. I mean, what, what really What's don't the big we deal? I got it here, but um, <laughs> no, uh, the, the, tech, the, 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 the secret knowledge I had, I think is pretty well, uh, been um, it's outdated, out outdated. Yeah, uh, yeah, by, yeah, yeah. By changes in the changes in the um, uh, environments, in the military stratagems, and things like that. But the things that I knew at the time that were top secret are no no longer relevant in today's society. They've been uh, uh, obsoleted, obsolescent. Yeah. Well, what do you, okay, tell me this then, but before we wrap this, I, I am curious, is there something that you're more aware of that 
how do you even approach this? You're aware that likely exists. And if if you could just, if the government, if the deep state just opened up this one file drawer, it would have the proof that you're like, yes, I knew it. I knew they were hiding this the entire time. There is proof that this incident happened, that we had this technology. Is there anything like that out there? Well, yeah, I think there is. I just, you know, if I was, if I was going to uh, want to be invited to every symposium in the free world, yeah, uh, I would, I would, I would come up with one of these stories about this inside knowledge I gained during my military. Uh, yeah, service. yeah. But, what do you think, like Bill Cooper, right? William Cooper was he was he off his rocker? Or? Oh, of course he was. Yeah, it, 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 it does not work the way he said it did when he was talking about his his top secret briefings to um, admirals and things like that he would have been he would have been the guy that was brought in after the briefing to clean the ashtrays and pick up the coke cans and clean the coffee pot yeah yeah totally you know i mean you have to look at yeah there are there are enlisted guys low ranking enlisted guys whose duties it would be to set up the equipment for the meetings and things like that but they wouldn't be present for the meetings you know, they, they would be outside that. Uh, Cliff Stone talked about this sort of thing too, the, how he was on the inside. Cliff Stone spent 22 years in the army and only rose to the rank of E7. I'm thinking that just doesn't bode well for him. And he said, well, I had all this special training, not according to your military records, you didn't. He was his high school graduate, which is right. not to be little high school graduates because a lot of high school graduates decide, I don't need college. And they're perfectly right about that. You don't need college unless you're going into specific fields. But he had all this alleged inside knowledge. And you can say, you don't have the training for it. You know, your military training shows up on your military records. Yeah. You know, what is taught in the schools may not be available to everybody who doesn't have a clearance. But the fact you attended the school is no big deal. I mean, I went to a, a DIA school, I think in 1977, you had to have a top secret clearance to get in. And so we had all this information handed to us. The fact I went to the school is in my military records, but what we learned in the school certainly is not. Hmm. And I'm pretty sure what we learned at the time is now way out of date because <laughs> we were talking about the Soviet Union, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless, well, I don't know, maybe it's all coming back. I'm not sure that stuff might be. Yeah. Well, the Soviet Union is gone. Now the Russian is a whole different kettle of fish. But I, what we knew was specific to the Soviet Union and the way they operated. True, true, true. Yes. Um, okay, so then what about look, let me let me throw one other big name at you just because he's he's not really synonymous, but he's definitely synonymous with uh in the mainstream of looking at recovered crash uh craft. What's up with Bob Lazar? Complete nut job? I Anything? I talked to George, I talked to George uh, Knapp about this. I've talked to other people about it. I just I just don't think that his tale is completely accurate. Okay, fair I'm, enough. I, I, I know Stan Friedman checked out his alleged college degrees or college and none of that checked out. And that's always a red flag. Yeah. But on the other hand, I know Russ Estes checked out um, another guy who was telling these wild stories and said he had been to either USC or US, UCLA and Russ called the registrar to find out if he'd attended college there, if he'd graduated from that college and was told no. And uh, somebody else followed up on that and they said yes. 
And the person that Russ talked to had made a mistake. You know, so you got to follow up the stuff. There, there again, you got to follow up the stuff yourself. Jesse Marcel talked about uh, a number of colleges he went to, but I couldn't find any evidence of it other than LSU. Um, and I thought, well, maybe the military often has what uh, the correspondence courses or um, courses that are taught on the colleges open to the service purposes, service personnel for the purposes of um, furthering their education, extension type courses. And I, uh, and I checked with the, the colleges that Jesse Marcel talked about attending and see if there was any kind of an extension course he might've attended and couldn't find anything like that. Um, so, you know, you look at all of that sort of thing. I asked Jesse Jr. about that once and he just said, I don't know, I don't understand. I said, I, do you have anything that, that would suggest your father might've attended some of these courses? And he just said, no, he just didn't know why his father would say that sort of thing. That is what's weird about it. I And this is, again, the big philosophical uh, question that I – it's so tough because on the one hand you go, well, if enough people say it, like you said, if enough people give you experiences, then the anecdotal can become the scientific. Uh, but also there are clearly people that do just make stuff up. Uh, but – then on the other side, if this is just the, it's just a game I keep playing with all these testimonies, especially when it comes to abductions, um, specifically with abductions. You're going, uh, could it have just been a dream? How do we know when it's a dream versus something that they did actually experience? What, who am I to say what someone's delusion is? Also, when enough people around the globe report similar experiences, then does this seem more than just a... A, a, a terrible nightmare. I mean, yeah, for all of us out there, I know I kind of asked a version of this earlier, but when you're coming to dealing with the psychology of people and what may or not may or may not be real, uh, what can we take from people's testimonies to, to help us legitimize any of this? One of the problems is with the abduction field is all the abduction researchers talk to one another. So when right. you begin to get, see things that appear in various uh, abduction scenarios that seem to corroborate other abduction scenarios, you have to remember the abduction researchers are talking to one another. And so while the, the subject may not be aware of the information, the researcher is. John Mack said at one point that he was astonished that the uh, experiencers seem to match with the researchers. In other words, those who... Uh, encountered cold calculating scientists ended up with Bud Hopkins. And those who seemed to be involved in this hybrid program ended up with David Jacobs. And those with an Eastern philosophy ended up with John Mack. And he said, it was just, it was curious matching. And I said, right. my God, this guy is a psychiatrist. Doesn't he realize that the problem is not the matching of the experiencer to the proper researcher, but the researcher uh, implanting Unconsciously, I'm sure his own, and I say his because uh, I'm thinking of Mac and Hopkins and, and yeah. Jacobs, but there's in, any number of women who are also doing the research. Kathleen Martin comes to mind, uh, for example. Um, but but they're kind of guiding the people to where they want them to go. Yes. And Hopkins at one point said, you know, challenged throughout the challenge, it said, show me where I've led the witness. And I said, challenge accepted. 
and went through his transcripts of one of his interviews. And I said, here is where you can see him leading the witness to where he wants that witness to go. And you see their techniques supposedly when they, they put someone under hypnotic regression and they yes. the witnesses, I don't remember anything. And they, they say, well, we can go deeper and we can go deeper and look at it as a movie and keeps pressing for information and eventually gets some. And I think that is the um, subject trying to please the operator. And that's a and that's that's a phenomenon that's well thing. known now in hypnotic uh, regression type research that you have to be very very careful in what you say and how you phrase questions, because those the people under the hypnotic influence can pick up on the cues and and kind of play it back. But there was and again on my blog there's a a long. Um, story about Bud Hopkins with this information. And here is where he's unconsciously, uh, I'm, I'm sure it was unconsciously, led the witness to where he wanted the witness to go. And so you have to look at all of that sort of thing. And you have to look at, you have to have access to the files. You have to understand how the questions were posed and how the session was conducted and what specifics the researcher was looking for. Was he looking for anything specific? I did a book called Conversations. And I don't know why it hasn't done more because if nothing else, it's a good story. And <laughs> I got involved in it because a woman believed she was being abducted and she was very frightened by this. And it was, it was affecting her life. And another fellow and I conducted the investigation. He, he did the hypnotism. Uh, I was more of the observer. And we actually ended up talking to her about past lives and she was, this was in the, the, the period before we had access to the internet with all this information available to us, where she was coming up with some of the things in their past lives, which is incredibly accurate. And when, how would this housewife in the Midwest know that? Because um, we, were, we were going to libraries and spending time in libraries looking for this information. Um, but it's kind of an interesting little book. And at the end, I'm not sure exactly what we had found. We just believed it was not an alien abduction because it, it, it evolved into this look into past lives. And I know um, Terry Loveless, who I'm going to be talking to uh, on Wednesday, is now involved in doing um, uh, abduction right. research and past life regressions. And so uh, I'll, I'll be interested to see, uh, hear his take on all of this sort of thing. But in the book Conversations, it's an interesting story, if nothing else. If you wanted to say, well, this is just kind of science fiction, that's fine. I'm not sure what I believe about it either at this point, but yeah. it's, it's an interesting story. And it's I was involved in it, and I'm still confused. Uh, one of the things we looked at was Bridie Murphy, who is this Colorado woman who, um, uh, under hypnotic regression, ended up telling tales about being a Irish woman in the mid 18th century with how could she possibly know any of this stuff i know the church i think it was a catholic church was outraged by this reincarnation type story right. and worked to actively suppress it so a lot of the information that came out about bridey murphy was biased because of that um, so you know i'm confused about that myself i just don't know i, I don't know about the bridey murphy case it just is, is very interesting there's other cases like that where um People have had memories that just don't seem to be appropriate for them to have had, given their age. 
suggesting a past life and that sort of thing. So in conversations, I look at all of that sort of thing. Oh um, man, I'm going to check that out. That is right in my wheelhouse. I, uh, I, I, I've been exploring, I, in my, my hypnotherapy background, other ways of, uh, doing stuff and i've always questioned the practice of past life regression uh especially but um you know i i trust you to have done your research and and checked up on the things people were saying um because yeah that's uh it could people could just you know you're you're absolutely right i mean that's the problem people could make stuff up they could uh, one of the, one of the women who was doing this past life uh, regressions and i don't want to give the name because uh, I, I may have the wrong woman, uh, but she had a, a, a client under hypnosis and was doing the hypnotic regressions. And, and the client kept saying, I, I, I don't see anything. I can't remember anything. And she finally just lost her temper and said, well, then make it up, hmm. which is not really yeah. something you should be telling the client in that respect. But yes, that's, yes. that's well documented that, that that episode happened. But as I say, you know, in conversations, I looked at that sort of thing. And we tried to do the research properly. Um, and we could think of no way that the woman would have known the things she knew. Um, because we had a hard time finding it. In today's environment, I'd have just typed a question into the uh, Google and come yeah. up with, come up with all of the, all of that sort of thing but I maybe i'll revamp this i will take i will bring it into the next century and let you know what happens <laughs> there you go <laughs> yeah let's see with google that'd be interesting that would be interesting no i hey you're a pioneer in the, in the hypnotic field too holy crap i mean you, you've done everything wait a sec kevin randall obviously uh who i'm speaking with is the author of level land uh also, pick up conversations, a study in hypnosis and past life regression. My gosh. Uh, as well as UFOs in the deep state. Uh, you can listen to him weekly on Coast to Coast AM. Uh, tell me this, Kevin. Deep underground military bases. Is it a real thing? No. No. Yeah, where did that one come from? That is a big I thing from people who are trying. I mean, deep people that believe in the deep state believe in that, which is interesting. That comes out of the Dulce, um, New Mexico thing of some kind of crash in near Dulce, New Mexico, or a, a alien base there. And I don't know how it all started. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, it's in the name, right? They all call them dumbs, but they turn it around and say, "Yeah, we're the dumbs because we don't we don't go into these caves and know the military's there, like they're in Antarctica and all this stuff." But um, yeah, it, it seems a, a little far fetched. Yeah, well, uh, I I just I don't have um, yeah I've been to Dulce. I didn't see I couldn't find anything. I know uh, I think it was John Greenwald. I think it was John Greenwald said that they were there for a number of days trying to find at least the. Um, the air vents that were supposedly dotted along the the mesa there around dulce and couldn't find anything my gosh okay fine you know what one more question before we go of all the evidence over the years of all the of of all the things that are the you that's um most remarkable about the whole ufo phenomenon that people say uh what what is the most just uh unbelievable thing in your eyes that is actually substantiated with evidence wow that's one i've never been asked 
in that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is a magical thing in some ways. People go, wow, this is – it lets you know there's wonder in the universe. I think I read a piece by Grant Cameron about this, the wow phenomenon, why UFOs go in and out of reality because his theory is that they're trying to open us up to wonder. Um, but but I do think there is something to that. I know when I tune into Coast to Coast every night, uh, I'm going, where where is my mind going to go today? So, yeah, I'm curious. I mean, what what is it for you that you're just going, this is – absolutely just I, I think remarkable. I think kind of kind of looking at that I was driving from Roswell out toward the where the base was in Roswell in 1947 thinking oh my god this is the this is the route that Jesse Marcel would have taken bringing the debris back from the Roswell crash and it just kind of sent shivers up and down my spine being out there on that road at that late at night heading in that direction wow that kind of thing um the level land case is astonishing because of the information that should have been gathered at the time and, and the amount of information we have in the public arena of documentation and that sort of thing. And the documentation is kind of lacking in Roswell. I guess that's kind of where I'd go with that. Yeah. Well, very cool. I Hey, look, I am grateful for everything you've contributed to this field. Uh, thank you for, for inspiring me to want to keep digging deeper. Uh, again, Level Land is out now. Uh, lots of understanding Roswell. Uh, we have the Moon Dust book. Uh, just so many books. I mean, support this man, please. Um, and, and, and I should point out, I host an hourly show on uh, the X-Zone Broadcast Network. Oh, uh, and there's a player on my on my blog so that you can listen to all the episodes. That's all, great. All 189 of them so far of the episodes I've conducted with uh, uh, on, on the Exxon Broadcast Network with with you name it. I probably talked to the person. I'm sure you the have. Only, the only person I didn't get was Stan Friedman because I was going to get him uh, in Roswell at the Roswell and he and he died like two months before the Roswell thing. So I was planning to sit yeah. down with him again on the program to chat with him about that. But I've talked to an awful lot of people, including Avi Loeb a couple of times. So um, that's on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And there's a player to the side that gives you the audio. And we just put on a video player as well. So there, I think there's one episode up there on, on video as well. Awesome. Well, look, everybody check out this man's work. Big contribution and uh, big contribution to this show. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been amazing. I, I definitely hope to uh, talk with you again in the future sometime. Well, you know, you know my address. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> this guy wants his paycheck. All right. Thank you. Thank you again, Kevin. I, hey, Kevin, I really appreciate it. This has been great. And thank you. I, I appreciate it as well. Kevin Randall, what a legend, such an honor to have him on, yes, UFOs come in all different shapes, sizes, speaking of which, you want all different kinds of perspectives, angles, colors, I'm going to be speaking and emceeing at Humanity Unplugged, a, I believe it's a 10-day, 12-day conference, it's kind of crazy, uh, 125 speakers at least, put on by Full Spectrum Universe and Watchers Talk, check that out, the link is in the comments, it's going to be wild, it started next week, hope to see you there.